All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to uh, my podcast. And today I have uh, a very special guest. I'm very excited to welcome uh, Professor Jay Garfield, um, uh, who is here to talk moral phenomenology, perhaps illusionism, selfless persons. Uh, thanks so much for being here, Jay. Maybe for people who don't know you already, you could say a few words about yourself. Sure. Thanks, Winston. And I'm really grateful to you for hosting me. This is a wonderful opportunity to talk. Um, I'm Jay Garfield, as you said, and I teach philosophy and Buddhist studies at Smith College and the Harvard Divinity School. And uh, that's what I do. Great. Who I am. Um, so what I'd mostly like to focus on um, is maybe uh, giving you space to present uh, your perspective on Buddhist ethics as phenomenology, a perspective I've seen you outline in uh, one of your recent publications uh, uh, in the Buddhist Philosophy for Philosophers series, the Buddhist ethics, that um, Buddhist ethics amounts to a kind of moral ph- phenomenology, a transformation of perception towards a moral moral mode of experiencing oneself uh, and the world, which is distinct from, say, utilitarianism or deontology, etc. So, uh, I don't know, maybe that's enough for you to riff on. Sure, sure. Um I think that the reason, one of the main reasons for studying Buddhist ethics is not that it's an attempt to do some kind of Western ethics only in Sanskrit or Tibetan, um, but that it offers a really distinctive voice in contemporary ethical discourse. So Western ethics, as you and your listeners probably know, has long been dominated by three principal approaches to ethics. Um, Aristotelian or Aratheic ethics that focuses on virtue or specific kinds of dispositions to act. Deontology, um, Kant is most often associated with that framework. That is a framework of duties and rights that tell us what we ought to do, what we ought not to do, what kinds of rights we have against others. And consequentialism or utilitarianism, um, an approach to ethics that asks us to evaluate actions or courses of action um, in virtue of the kinds of consequences usually uh, cashed out in terms of pleasure and pain or wealth and poverty and so forth um, that issue from those, um, from those actions. Each of those approaches to ethics is what I call a kind of output approach. That is their approaches to ethics that focus on what we do as opposed to how we experience the world. The big difference between Buddhist ethics and all of those approaches Though I should, as a footnote, say there are people in the West who approach ethics this way as well. I would say in particular the Stoics and Hume are the two big examples. The British sentimentalists, generally Adam Smith, is another person to put into that box. But set them aside for a moment, um, partly because um, they are a small current in the great river of Western ethics. And most people find it convenient to ignore them, though I think that's a mistake. Anyway, anyway, coming back to Buddhist ethics. Buddhist ethics is input ethics. It's ethics that focuses on how we experience the world and how we see the world, how we experience ourselves, how we experience other sentient beings, and how we experience ourselves in relation to other sentient beings. For that reason, it's really picking up the whole project of ethics um, from a kind of different direction. If we think of ethics in general as the approach to thinking about how we ought to lead our lives, one way to think about how to lead our lives is to think about what we should do. But another way to think about how we should lead our lives is to think about how we should perceive. And Buddhist ethics picks things up that way. So very often we see ourselves reflexively, instinctively, um, in what I call a kind of polar coordinate system um, in the moral universe, where we find ourselves at the center, and then we see everybody else as in terms of their relationship to us, or every other phenomenon in terms of its relationship to us. Is this my child or somebody else's child? My spouse or somebody else's spouse? Is this my friend or my enemy or somebody I don't particularly know? Are these people close to me or distant from me? Is I care about or something I don't care about. And when we do that, a couple of things happen that Buddhist moral theorists think are terribly distorting. One is we get a really misshapen view of where we are and um, how we count. That is our own preferences 
or our own relations to others tend to count far more than they should. We think of our desires as really good reasons to act. Maybe they could be counterbalanced by something else. Maybe we decide it's the wrong desire or it might harm somebody else. But at least we take the fact that we want to do it as a prima facie reason to act. And that is already weird. That's already weird. Um, but secondly, um, we tend to think of the interests of others as compelling to us really to the extent to which they're proximal to us or to the extent to which we see them as friends. Um, so we see special obligations to take care of our kids or our friends, but not such great obligations to take care of people who are far away. Um, that's really deeply distorting. Um, and so what Buddhist ethics is aimed at is correcting that moral misperception and to generating a sense of living in a kind of homogenous moral space in which there's no center, not that there is one and we're not there, but that there's no center at all. And one of the ways that Buddhist ethics does this is through cultivating these four kinds of states that are often called the divine states, the Brahma Viharas. One of those states is what is a state of care or karuna, sometimes translated as compassion. That is a commitment to um, work to alleviate suffering. Another is maitri or friendliness, uh, sometimes translated as loving kindness. That is an attitude that wishes well to others, that takes others' welfare as a motive, not just our own welfare. A third is mudita or sympathetic joy, the ability to really take pleasure and to be happy at the achievement of others and not to take only our own achievements or the achievements of those we care about as important. And finally, a kind of impartiality or equanimity that um, allows us to see all sentient beings as equally um, meriting our concern. And when you put those four things together, what you get is a sense that there's nothing particularly special about me um, and that the um, the interests of all sentient beings are morally relevant. Now, this by itself doesn't tell me what to do, but by perceiving things in this way, my own spontaneous responses lead me to a better moral engagement with the world. And so the idea behind Buddhist ethics is that if we see the world aright, we're going to function in the world in a better way. And when you look at almost all of the practices, all of the kinds of moral admonitions, all of the valorizations of states of character in Buddhist ethics, you can see them all as contributing to this project of developing a clearer, more salutary view of who we are and what the world is like. Excellent. Uh, so to summarize and make sure I've, I've understood what you said, um, our ordinary ways of perceiving and our rational idealizations of those perceptions have as kind of a, a weighted preference towards oneself and those proximate to us. Um, whereas Buddhist ethics not only uh, argues that uh, it's uh, metaphysically, epistemologically incorrect to perceive and act in that way, uh, but that it is more salutary uh, morally um, and for one's own happiness, not just, you know, a kind of self-abnegating sense um, to have a more uh, centralist mode of engagement uh, with the world, both ethically, phenomenologically, and those two come together. That's that, absolutely right. That's absolutely right. Um, and there are all, all of Buddhist uh, meditative practice can kind of be seen as contributing to the achievement of uh, those uh, those ethical aims, or, you know, they're one and the same. Uh, maybe, right. maybe you could say something about the, the difference between uh, aspirational and uh, engaged uh, bodhicitta. Sure. Um, one of the attitudes valorized in the Mahayana tradition, um, and especially um, articulated by Chandrakirti and Shantideva, two really great ethical theorists within that tradition. Um, Chandrakirti lives in the 7th century, Shantideva in the 8th century is the idea of bodhicitta. Um, and bodhicitta is really the aspiration to attain awakening for the sake of sentient beings. That is the aspiration to develop my own moral skills to the, uh, to the highest level so that I can be of maximum value um, to others. Now, Shantideva, in uh, the opening verses of his text, How to Lead an Awakened Life, the uh, Sanskrit title is Bodhicharya Avatara, um, articulates 
two different senses of bodhicitta. The first one is, we usually translate as aspirational bodhicitta, and the second one as engaged bodhicitta. And in distinguishing those two, Shantideva uses a really nice analogy. And the analogy he uses draws on the fact that people making pilgrimages um, often use guidebooks in the way that we use TripAdvisor um, right now, or that in my generation we use the Lonely Planet guidebooks. Um, and if you're planning a trip, um, suppose you're planning a trip to someplace really cool, like, say, Varanasi. And um, so what the first thing you do maybe is you get a guidebook or you get, get on a trip advisor and you find out uh, where the good places are to stay, what the best way is to get there, what the cool things are to do there and to see there. And you learn a lot about it before you go. Um, but suppose somebody that asks you a bunch of questions about Varanasi and you say, oh, yeah, yeah, it's really good to stay in this particular place. And it's really great to go on the River Ganga in the morning and on these boats. And there's really good sweets. And here's where you can get them. And this is a really good restaurant. And um, the ghats are really cool. And you can see all these people doing it. And you go on and on. And they say, well, if you already know all of that stuff, why bother going there? Um, and the answer is that it's one thing to read about it. It's another thing to actually experience it. And you want not only to read about it, but to experience it. And Shantideva says that aspirational bodhicitta is like somebody who knows about a place by reading a guidebook. An engaged bodhicitta is like having been there. And so one way to think about that is that aspirational bodhicitta is a kind of cognitive attitude. It's um, a kind of theoretical understanding, if you want. It's a, um, a a knowledge that one ought to cultivate these states and that they're really good states to cultivate and, and a strong aspiration to do so. Um, but it always has a kind of inferential um, and abstract uh, sensibility. So you have to think about things. Um, you have to think, okay, here's a situation in which somebody needs my help. What should I do? Like that. But engaged bodhicitta is more perceptual. It's like being there. That's the goal of of uh, Mahayana Buddha's practice, to achieve that sense of knowing the moral landscape in virtue of having been there rather than in virtue of having thought about it. And so that really requires that we go from theoretical understandings into practice and actually perfecting our own moral character. And that involves perfecting perceptual skills. That's the important thing to see. And, you know, we should be familiar already with domains in which perceptual skills are important to expertise. So if you were training to be a radiologist, for instance, you would be training yourself to be able to look at x-rays or MRIs or um, CAT scans and to see broken bones or tumors in a way that right now you can't. You could look at that and then read a kind of manual and and do something inferential. That's like the guidebook. But the expert radiologist just sees that. The expert botanist sees elm trees and oak trees and maple trees and white pines and scotch pines and Douglas firs. And the untrained person just sees really cool trees. Um, and you can engage much better with a forest if you actually know what you're seeing than if you don't. So engaged bodhicitta is like that. It's developing perceptual skills um, in lieu of theoretical skills. Wonderful. Um, something came up uh, to mind, the, um, the sources of valid knowledge in pramana theory. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's inference, which is kind of, we, we, you could relate that to aspirational bodhicitta, but then there's uh, direct perception, which is That's more. exactly of, right the uh, the engaged portion, which actually requires uh, expert, uh, skillful uh, application of, of practice and then eventual spontaneous uh, flowing forth of appropriate activity. That's exactly right. And that's the distinction that Shantideva has in mind here. The two, two pramanas recognized by the Buddhist epistemological tradition of perception and inference. And it's worth noting um, that the Buddhist tradition, even though its epistemology uh, recognizes these two kinds of pramana, these two kinds of epistemic instruments, always valorizes perception over inference. And the reason for that is that perception engages with particulars and inference engages with universals. And universals from a Buddhist standpoint are unreal. 
They're fictional. They're cognitive constructs because Buddhism is a nominalist tradition. So that what's real is what's particular and what's concrete. And so another way of understanding Buddhist ethics, if we come at it through this direction, is to say that Buddhist ethics is about how we engage in concrete particular situations um, rather than theoretical ideas about what we should do and when we should do it and how we should do it. In in that sense, does it have something uh, in common with, and I'm not terribly familiar personally with uh, these these moral theorists, but moral particularism? Moral, uh, yes. particularism? Yes, uh, B- Buddhist ethics is particularist in that sense. Just as when we see something, we see it in its particularity, whereas when we conceive of it, we conceive of it in terms of the concepts that it instantiates. So it's one thing to see a particular dog. It's another thing just to think about dogs. Um, and when we respond to a dog, we don't respond to it in virtue of the concept of a dog. We respond in virtue of the particular dog in front of us. Um, and so, once again, uh, Buddhism is particularist um, in that sense. And moral particularism is a, an approach to ethics that's been gaining a little bit of ground in the West um, recently as well, largely through the work of Jonathan Dancy. Right. Um, let's see. Maybe we could, uh, you, you could say something about uh, relating to your most recent book um, that hasn't, has yet to be published soon. Um, It'll be out in a few weeks. A few weeks. Um, yeah. The greatest fiction of them all, speaking of uh, uh, unreal universals and concrete particulars, uh, the self in, in Buddhism and how that relates to ethics and seeing through the, the sure. well, you, I'm sure you can take uh, it from here. Sure, I'd be happy to. So the book that's coming out is called um, Losing Yourself, How to Be a Person Without a Self. And it is a book that begins in metaphysics, in the metaphysics of the person and the self. And it draws both on Buddhist um, ideas and on Western ideas, as well as on contemporary neuroscience. So the big heroes of the book are really Chandrakirti, who we've already mentioned, and David Hume um, in the West, but also a lot of contemporary cognitive science, um, which tends to confirm um, the views of Chandrakirti and Hume, not surprisingly, since they were really smart guys. Um, but um, the, the, that book is exploring the idea that although we instinctively think of ourselves and those around us as selves, that is, as these kind of um, substantial, permanent, enduring cores that are distinct from our minds and bodies, the, the things that have a mind, that has a body, the thing that once was really young and soon now is really old, and so forth, the permanent, enduring, that's the agent of action, that's the subject of experience, that stands behind our senses and uses them to look out at the world, and so forth. That idea of a self, which is terribly instinctive, We also think of that self as transcendentally free, as able to act free of the causal nexus and to do things just through a kind of mysterious agent causation. Um, And to replace that notion with the notion of a person, the Sanskrit is Pudgala, um, something that is a constantly changing arrangement of psychophysical processes in open causal interaction with the world, um, that is impermanent, that has no core, that is causally determined, um, and is in constant interaction with other persons, um, and that is conventionally constituted and is conventionally real. Um, and that, by the way, is the only kind of actual reality that Buddhism recognizes, um, but is very different from a self. So the book is devoted to exploring that idea, to arguing that, in fact, we're not selves, but that we are persons, um, answering some objections to that. But then in the second half, asking what follows from that. And a lot of what follows from that is ethical. Um, Because when we think of ourselves as selves, and we think of others as selves, as Shantideva points out, a number of really important moral errors follow. One is that we give, get this illusion of standing outside of the world and acting on it in this transcendentally free way. Um, you know, when Augustine um, in the West um, tries to resolve the problem of theodicy set up by the Garden of Eden, the problem that if God is really good, 
really smart and really powerful, then it looks like it was his fault that Eve listened to the snake and everything else follows. And Shanti, and Shanti Deva, <laughs> Augustine responds to that conundrum by inventing this idea of a free will and suggesting, yeah, that God couldn't have really stopped it because he made us absolutely free, or that means not bound by causality. Now, that notion, of course, is antithetical, both to reason, um, because after all, we are biological organisms in a physical world. And if you don't believe that, just look. Um, but also to the general Buddhist idea of dependent origination, that all phenomena are dependent upon causes and conditions, um, and all phenomena are dependent for their existence on conceptual imputation, and that all phenomena depend upon their parts and on the holes in which they figure for their existence. So when we ditch the idea of an autonomous self um, and for an interdependent person, we get a better understanding of our agency. Um, we're not acting out of transcendental freedom. We're caused to act by our intentions, our beliefs, our values, by the, by the perceptual stuff around us, so that we can actually do something about that. We can actually change those conditions. It also allows us, when other people act in ways that upset us, not to act, react with anger, but to react with care or to react with friendliness, recognizing that their actions aren't the result of a freely undertaken decision outside of the causal nexus, but rather derive from circumstances in their lives, from their own beliefs, their perceptions, perhaps their neuroses or their trauma. And that allows us to really respond to somebody who's behaving, say, angrily or aggressively with care rather than meeting anger with anger. And that enables us actually to resolve problems rather than to exacerbate them. So I think, as um, did Chandrakirti and as Shantideva did and as Hume did, that the idea that we're selves rather than persons has pernicious moral consequences. When we understand that we're persons, we understand our interdependence with others. And that allows us to develop attitudes of gratitude towards others. Um, you know, we often have this idea in self-cultures like Western culture um, that we ought to, we're fundamentally independent. We Children have to learn to stand on their own two feet. We talk about self-made men. We talk about, um, you know, living an independent life. When people say that, I kind of wonder, what's that mean? Does that mean I really need to raise all of my own food and build my own car and drill for the oil that makes the petrol for it? Refine that oil. But if I'm raising the food, I'd better also make the dirt. Um, and I'd better cause the rain to fall on it. I'd better have manufactured the seeds myself or, you know, and so forth. All of that's just stupid, right? And we know that it's stupid. The idea that people do things independently doesn't make any damn sense at all. Um, we are all interdependent, and that's the nature of our agency. But that interdependence um, should, if we recognize it, lead to attitudes of gratitude, care, and friendship, and impartiality rather than the egoistic attitudes that are associated with the self-illusion. And so that's how these two projects, the ethics book and the no-self book, are connected. Wonderful. Uh, thank you so much. So, again, uh, attempting to, to summarize, um, we ordinarily see the world perhaps, uh, you know, some, some degree of acculturation and philosophical education, but perhaps more so um, inbuilt perceptual cognitive distortions that are just a result of, uh, of, of growing up and becoming habituated. Uh, we see things and people, ourselves and others, and the world outside of us in terms of essences, uh, mm -hmm. rather than as interdependent processes. But if, you know, through deliberate practice and inference, we can uh, unbind those uh, associations and, and uh, perceptions, then uh, we come to see the world uh, both in a more true sense, as in according with reason, uh, but also in a way that uh, frees up suffering in ourselves and hopefully makes us uh, uh, more kinder, more gentler, and more helpful people to be around. Is that, uh... I, I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. All right. Um, you alluded um, earlier, uh, circling back to the, the unity of the, the two truths, the, the conventional and the ultimate um and the, the 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 you said something like the conventional is the only truth or the only reality that things have maybe you could just briefly that, that might be difficult uh, say something on that sure um madhyamaka 
philosophy, middle way Buddhist philosophy especially, but Buddhist philosophy in general, distinguishes between two truths or two realities or two ways of being real. Excuse me, a conventional truth and an ultimate truth. Now, when we talk about conventional truth, Chandrakirti again glosses that in three ways. Um, he says that that involves um, truth by agreement, um, truth in terms of language and linguistic conventions, and being dependently originated. Dependent origination, again, has these multiple dimensions to it. So when we say that something's conventionally true, one sense of convention is like um, the Geneva Convention, something we agree to, or the conventions that govern the meaning of language, or that make money possible. Um, we forget sometimes that all of these things rely on convention. And when we do that, we forget how much of human life relies on convention. Um, Hume talks about the concealed influence of custom, um, the idea that convention, or as he would put it, custom, um, governs so much of our lives, but it does it in ways that we don't recognize. So to take a kind of silly example, if you pull a dollar bill out of your wallet, you look at that piece of paper and you think, this piece of paper is worth a dollar. Then you pull out a 20 and you say, this one's worth $20. But the paper and the ink on both of them, they're the same. There's not no difference in how much the paper is worth, how much the ink is worth. The fact that the 20 is worth more than the one depends entirely on conventions and practices. It depends on how storekeepers um, accept them and don't accept them. It depends on the Federal Reserve. It depends on the on the press. It depends, on the, that is the mint and all of those things. So it's a whole network of customs that are there. When I'm um, using language as I am now, the fact that people can understand me relies on the fact that we all participate in the same customs or conventions for using words and for understanding them. Those customs or conventions constitute the meanings of words. And Chandra Kirti's point is that it's those kinds of customs and conventions that constitute the ontology and the reality of our everyday world. Now, that is that the everyday world is dependently originated. That's the point. Now, the second truth, the ultimate truth, which makes it sound like, wow, that must be really transcendent and important, is um, in Buddhist philosophy thought of as the emptiness of all phenomena. And that is the em- not the non-existence. It's not the emptiness of existence, but it's the emptiness of any intrinsic nature or intrinsic identity or the emptiness of being independent. And so the idea is that all phenomena are empty of that intrinsic character because they're dependently originated. So when we come to understand things as empty, what we do is we stop superimposing intrinsic existence or intrinsic identity or independence on the interdependent phenomena that we encounter and recognize them as interdependent. But what that means is that to be empty is to be interdependent. To be interdependent is to be empty. And that means that the ultimate truth is that everything that exists exists only conventionally. Or as my friend Mark Sideritz put it very perfectly, the ultimate truth is that there is no ultimate truth. Uh, that uh, and as I understand it, and as I've read uh, your work, the um, the outline of the two truths and the the ultimate uh, is especially that version of it is um, uh, formulated uh, by uh, the Tibetan philosopher. Uh, I'm not sure actually how to pronounce it. Sankapa J. Sankapa. I'm not. Yeah, Jade Sankapa is, is not the person who formulated this, no. It's formulated originally by the Indian philosopher Nagarjuna, who lived in the second century, and then um, articulated through his commentators, Buddhapalata, uh, Chandrakirti, Bhaviveka, and others. And, Ch- and Ch- uh, Tsongkhapa um, in Tibet is also commenting on Nagarjuna's text and on Chandrakirti's texts. So what he's doing is developing a very precise commentarial articulation of the ideas that were originally developed by Nagarjuna and Chandrakirti. So if you really want to start your kind of examination of emptiness, you really want to start with Nagarjuna and then work your way forward. Um, and eventually you'll get to Tsongkhapa and then go past him to other folks. Right. Tsongkhapa was active in the 14th century and 15th century. Um, perhaps uh, we could turn now to um, 
the issue, uh, and you've written on this at, at least in one place that I'm aware of, uh, of phenomenal consciousness. And perhaps you could say something uh, about the, um, dependently originated nature of our, of our conscious experience, uh, sure. br- bridging, uh, if you can, uh, current cognitive science and, uh, illusionism uh, and, uh, any, anything else that, that, that comes to mind. Uh, and for people who may not be familiar with the terms of this debate, uh, it would be helpful. I, I imagine if you could define things like qualia, phenomenal consciousness, and then this is a big ask. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> Sorry. You want, you want a kind of quick introduction of the phenomenal consciousness debate and <laughs> then a, a defense of my weird position in that debate, which I, <laughs> I, I will try my best. I will try my best. Um, it is a big ask. Okay. Um, so, um, imagine for a moment something really nice. That is, you're on a beach and you're watching a sunset and it's a beautiful red sunset. Maybe you've got a margarita in your hand. Um, you're sitting on the beach and it's absolutely gorgeous. Um, and somebody asks you, gee, so what's your consciousness? What's it like to be you right now? What's your consciousness like? Um, there's a broad strain of thought Um, that runs through a lot of Western philosophy that says that at this point, what you do is you direct your attention inward and you attend to the inner experiences happening in your mind. Um, And that so that corresponding to the red of the sky, there's an inner sensation of red or experience of red. Philosophers like the term qualia for that, or quale, a qualitative state inside. And that you look inside and you say, wow, I've got these red experiences right now. I've got these experiences of bliss right now. I've got this experience of there being a margarita in my hand right now and so forth. And so that what the, the image that we've got here is that corresponding to all of the properties and all of the events and phenomena external to us of which we're aware, there are these inner phenomena of which we're immediately aware. And then you might think a couple of cool things about this. First, it's those inner experiences that ultimately explain how it is that we can be aware of outer phenomena. And secondly, we are, even though we might be wrong about the outer phenomena, maybe it's not a sunset, maybe it's a dust storm. Um, maybe it's not red, maybe I'm colorblind and it's really a kind of greenish light. Um, we can't possibly someone thinks, be wrong about the nature of our own experience of those qualitative states inside of us because they're just there for us. And so we get this picture that the way that we might be fallibly aware of an external world is by first becoming infallibly aware of things happening in an inner world and then um, using that infallible awareness of the inner to infer to the character of the outer world. Now, I wish I were making this up, but I'm not. Lots of people believe that things are like that. Maybe you even thought that my my account there was vaguely plausible. Um, but I think it's actually bullshit, um, to use a philosophical term. <laughs> um, and that for several reasons. Um, reason number one. Um, just flat out, when somebody asks you kind of, what are you seeing right now? The red that I'm seeing is the red in the sky, not a red inside my mind. Um, if you actually open up your head, there's nothing red in there except blood. There's not a red sensation lurking in there. Um, secondly, even if there were such a red sensation, the only way that I could use that inner red to infer the outer red would be to know that there was a correlation between inner reds and outer reds. And so to use the inner one as a kind of sign or evidence of something outer. But to do that, I'd have to have direct experience of the outer red and the inner red and know that they happen at the same time, and that the inner red never happens when there's outer blue, for instance. But that's stupid, because by hypothesis, I'm supposed to only know about outer red through inner red. So that doesn't make any damn sense either, which means that this whole picture would lock our experience inside. We'd be locked in in a way that the only thing we could ever know is our own inner life and not something external. But it gets worse. If you thought that the problem with our knowledge of the external world 
is that it's fallible because we're hidden behind our sensory apparatus and the external world is delivered to us only by those sensory apparatus, but that our inner world is delivered to us immediately, then you are forgetting the fact that when you're asked to direct your attention inside, you are also using a sensory faculty. You are using your introspective faculty what in the Buddhist world we call manas vinyana, or the mental or introspective sense power. And that sense faculty is as subject to illusion as any external sense faculty. Moreover, if it's really functioning as a sense faculty, which it is, and I look inside to find that red experience, it turns out I don't find the red experience. All I find is my inner sense faculty telling me that there's a red experience. And now I'm back to the same problem I was with the external world. I now have to wonder, is there really a red experience there or is my inner sense faculty bad? One way of putting this is this. The whole problem that the qualitative experience model is supposed to solve is that when we think about our sense faculties, our external sense faculties, there's a sense in which they're opaque to us. We don't know whether they're functioning like really good telescopes or like kaleidoscopes. Um, And so we don't know whether the experience we're getting is just made up or is actually reflecting something external. But once we see that that's a problem, then we have to see that it's just as much a problem for our inner sense as for our outer sense. And if we don't know that our introspective powers are telescopes and not kaleidoscopes, um, then we don't, we can't tell ourselves that we have immediate special access to our inner experience. And so my view is that the idea that inner experience is just given to us as it is, that it's immediately and veridically present to us just by looking, and that when we experience the world, we do it in this mediated way, first experiencing our own experience and then inferring outward, is just simply a mass of conceptual confusions. Um, and so that, that position is called illusionism because it's suggesting that the immediacy of the inner is an illusion. Um, and it's what Galen Strawson has called the great silliness. Um, on the other hand, I think it's the only sane position. Um, and it's, um, a position that we find articulated sometimes in the Buddhist tradition, sometimes not, sometimes in the Western tradition, sometimes not. But I think that the moment we begin to really reflect on the ways in which our experience is mediated, we discover that it's mediation all the way down, that immediacy is always illusory. Uh, so I'm going to do that thing again where I try to try to summarize and reflect back to make sure I've understood. Maybe it'll be helpful for the audience. Um, the, the, the primary illusion here is one of epistemic immediacy. Whereas we, we have this problem where our perceptions of the external world, uh, are inaccurate. We know this from illusion, from disordered states, uh, or just from, uh, sleepiness, tiredness. You know, we could be in all kinds of states where our perception of the quote unquote outside world is, is, uh, in some ways incorrect. Um, however, we can even be perfectly fine and we succumb to things like the Mueller liar illusion or the color fi illusion because we have evolved to be susceptible to illusions. The self illusion is a really good example of that. Yeah. How, however, it seems to us when we, uh, introspect, uh, however that is triggered, someone says, Oh, look inside your mind right now mm-hmm. or something like that. Uh, it seems, or maybe it doesn't seem to people who haven't been inculcated into this philosophical view. Uh, it seems. I, I, I think it seems to almost everybody. In my view, it's really hard to find somebody who doesn't think that they've got immediate veridical access to their own inner life. <laughs> uh, despite the massive evidence, uh, right. you know, both, both the psychological and, uh, and now neuroscientific, cognitive scientific, that there's a whole teeming mass of activity going on below our conscious awareness. Um, sure. uh, but anyway, it, we, we turn inwards in this uh, reflexive move um, and, for some reason, we, we don't suspend, uh, this, uh, this automatic, uh, belief in the appearances which, uh, which appear to us. Um, and so we then form a picture, a kind of, uh, mental representation of our cognitive sensory apparatus as a theater. The Cartesian theater is a term that's often, uh, thrown around. And you think this is, uh, just wrong from the outset, which, you know, I, I, it, when when I spell it out like that, it does seem rather silly. 
It does. I mean, it's it's a curious thing. I'm, I'm glad you used Dan Dennett's metaphor of the Cartesian theater, because I think that's a really apt way to think about it. And the cool thing about that is that when you describe the Cartesian theater, people begin nodding and say, yeah, that's how, that's how experience is as an outer world. And then it gets transferred to the inner world. And then I know it in my inner world. So I know it in the outer world. But the longer you try to say it, the stupider and more incoherent it sounds. And you suddenly realize that you've been seduced by a metaphor. Um, and metaphors can sometimes be useful, but this one is really quite pernicious. All right. So no epistemic immediacy and, uh, so we we are subject to cognitive and perceptual illusions at all levels, uh, all the way down. That yeah. uh, it, the most pernicious of being that of a uh, a solid self and essences in here um, mm. and out there. That's the second most pernicious. What's the first? The real most pernicious one is that there's no illusion there. <laughs> <laughs> hey, through, through inference, we can at least uh, you know reason our way to that there's there's an illusion going on. But uh, if you can't even get that far, then you're you're then you're in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> and the point about illusions that's worth remembering is that knowing that you're subject to an illusion doesn't make the illusion go away. And, you know, one really easy way that anybody can show themselves this, and they, all you need is a pen and a piece of paper or some chalk and a blackboard, is to draw the Mueller-Liar illusion right in front of yourself, to draw those lines of equal length that are parallel, then draw the arrowheads. And even though you yourself drew them and saw them to be equal, they start looking unequal. And then you erase the arrowheads and they look equal again. And you know that it's an illusion, but you're still sucked in. Um, and I think that's a really important lesson for us all to learn is that it's one thing to do the psychology or to do the philosophy or to do the neuroscience and recognize that so much of our experience is illusory. It's another thing to internalize that sense and to really experience the world as illusion-like um, and then to find, recognize that we also appear to ourselves in an illusory way and to find a way to behave spontaneously in the world that product recognizes that fact. And perhaps uh, as, as a gloss, just to make sure everybody in the audience and, and I am on the same page by illusory, we don't mean that there's nothing going on that, uh, that we have no uh, perceptual sensory uh, awareness of either our introspective internal states or extrospective, you know, uh, interaction with the world. That's not the view that is being uh, offered here. Uh, right. It's just that we're radically mistaken about the nature of that process. That's right. I mean, the classical Indian definition of illusion is the one that I have operative here. And that is we have an illusion when we have something that exists in one way, but appears in another. So mirages, for instance, which are a very common example of this, exist as refraction patterns of light in, in the air. They appear to be water on the road. They exist in one way, appear in another. But a mirage is not non-existent. A mirage is a real mirage. It's just not real water. We are real persons. We're just not real selves. And whenever we find something that's an illusion, we want, it's best to think about it as something that exists in one way and appears in another. And then to try to find out the, its actual mode of existence and try to train ourselves to experience it as it exists rather than to experience it as it naively appears. So paraphrasing, there there are real interdependent perceptual processes occurring in this coupled mind-body world system, yep. uh, yet uh, naively uh, and sometimes elaborated into a philosophical view, uh, it appears as though there's a uh, disjunction between an inner world of appearance and an outer world of appearance. That, that's right. And, I, and here's another metaphorical way to think about that that I think can be really useful. Um we know that we exist as embodied beings embedded in a world who enact our existence in that, in that world. Um, but the way that we experience ourselves is beautifully illustrated by Wittgenstein in the Tractatus when he describes this as just like the eye in the visual field. That is, our eye isn't actually in our visual field. 
but the visual field as our object and the eye is outside of the visual field made known by the fact that we're seeing. And Wittgenstein says, yeah, that's how the self is. The self isn't in the world. It's outside of the world, made known by the fact that the world appears. Now, I think that's a great metaphor for the illusion. Now, but it's a metaphor not for how we exist. It's for how we think we exist. Because we take ourselves to be standing outside of the spatio-temporal universe, acting on it, experiencing, experiencing it, and so forth. But you can't say that with a straight face. You can't say with a straight face, I exist outside of space and time and contemplate the world from outside. And so, again, we appear to ourselves as eyes with respect to the visual field when our actual mode of existence is embedded, embodied, enacted. I'm, I'm hearing in the words you're using uh, echoes of, of Evan Thompson. Has, has that been an Absolutely. influence? Yeah. Evan and I have been good friends and colleagues for a long time. Yeah. I've learned a great deal from Evan's work. Um, there's some things, there's something in all you've said so far, and you've also translated uh, uh, some of Patrol Rinpoche's poetry, which I very much enjoyed. Uh, maybe we could speak a little bit uh, on how the, one of, one of the radical illusions at, at the base of our experience is the distinction between a subject and an object. So a subject knowing appearances apart yeah. from those appearances. Yeah. Um, part of the illusory nature of the self, and I explore this in the, uh, in the new book on, on the self, but also a little bit in the ethics book is the illusion of subject object duality. Um, one way of putting that is that our relationship to the world and, you know, ipso facto, our relationship to other sentient beings in the world, even to our own bodies, even to our own thoughts and our own minds. Um, is often thematized in, in our kind of pre-reflective experience in terms of subject-object duality. That is, we think of our subjectivity and the objects we experience as distinct and that the structure of experience is primordially given by the difference between subject and object. And so once again, the Wittgenstein metaphor is there. The world is my object. I'm the subject that experiences the world. The things in front of me are independent objects that exist just as they are, as they appear to me, and my subjectivity is what presents them to me. When we know, if we just think in terms of psychophysics, or if we think in terms of cognitive neuroscience, or just if we think from careful common sense, that again, we don't stand over and against the world. The things we experience are things constructed by our minds and our sensory processes in constant open perception action cycles that um, embed us with and can and in and uh, constitute our relationship to the world around us. Um, I mean, just think about this for a minute. If right now I'm uh, looking at you on my computer screen, and it certainly appears to me instinctively and reflexively that what my eyes are doing is delivering you exactly as you look um, to me because I'm a faithful recorder of the world. When I know that all that's happening is that light is reflecting from that screen and it is entering the lens of my eye, being reversed and refracted through jelly, engaging electronically with the uh, nerve cells on the back of my retina, sending electrical impulses up my optic nerve, heading to my occipital cortex through two distinct pathways, and then a whole bunch of electronic activity is happening in my occipital cortex and connecting to other parts of my brain, and none of that looks like you. Um, Not a bit of it. So what's happening is that an experience is being constructed out of all of that. Um, and that isn't something external to me. That's something implicated in who I am. So that's a fundamentally non-dual experience. But when we thematize that experience, we thematize it in terms of subject-object duality. That's a superimposition on an experience that's primordially non-dual of subject-object duality. 
Um, so one way of thinking about how this kind of illusion arises from a Buddhist perspective is that we're constantly superimposing the word samarupa. We're superimposing intrinsic existence on things that don't exist intrinsically. We're superimposing independence on things that are interdependent. We're superimposing duality on an experience that's primordially non-dual. And trying to peel off that superimposition is really important if we're going to really understand the nature of our reality. Um, I do think that there's, and I talk about this in the self book as well, um, as well as a little bit in the ethics book, that we often do have access to that primordially non-dual nature of experience. And that's in what we often call in the sports psychology world flow states. Um, states in which we don't thematize me and other, but in which we simply respond spontaneously and effortlessly to the world around us. After thematize things in terms of subject-object duality. But it's worth recognizing that in expert performance, whether it's expert musical performance, expert sports performance, expert surgical performance, or just in really deep conversation with one another, the I and the other, the self and the other, the subject and the object drop away. We don't thematize those then. And that's when we're at our best. So one of the things that I like to say is that Buddhist ethics, Buddhist action theory, Buddhist philosophy is not about how to lead a virtuous life. It's about how to lead a virtuoso life. It's about how to be constantly in a state of expertise instead of in the novice state. In a novice state, it really is important to thematize self and other in order to develop skills. Um, but in a an expert state, that kind of thematization just gets in the way of performance. It gets in the way of practice. So one way of framing it, uh, again, paraphrasing what you've, what you've said is that through, uh, you know, first, first inference, you know, acquainting ourselves with this, this sort of view of ourselves in the world. And then through, uh, probably very long and, uh, arduous practice, although for some, it seems to come more easily, uh, we're able to lead more and more of our lives uh, in this uh, state of, of, of virtuosity, wherein self and other uh, subject and object, uh, a world of outer appearance and a world of inner subjectivity where that has uh, disappeared. And we respond with care from that place, uh, lacking self and other. That's it. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. That's why Dogen can say in, um, in Genjo Koan, to study the self is to forget the self. And when we forget the self, body and mind drop away. When body and mind drop away, then we are affirmed by the myriad things um, that are affirmate. We are affirmed as persons in interaction with thematizing ourselves as selves. Well, uh, you know, I'm not sure it's going to get uh, any better than that. So perhaps we should uh, close it off there unless there's uh, anything further uh, you'd like to say on the topics we've already covered. It's been a really pleasant um, conversation and a great opportunity to talk with you. And I hope something that's of value and of interest to your listeners. I, I hope so, too. Uh, where can people uh, find your work, uh, Jay? I'll put links to uh, your most recent books and your, your academic pages. But uh, for yeah. folks who want to seek you out? Well, the easiest way to find the books is the pretty standard way these days of going to your bookstore or to Amazon. Um the new book on no self is coming out on Princeton University Press in May. And it's, as I say, a popular audience book. It doesn't presuppose any technical expertise. The um, Buddhist ethics for, for, um, book um, called Buddhist ethics, a philosophical exploration was on Oxford University Press uh, last year. And the book that it follows, which is engaging Buddhism, why it matters to philosophy is on Oxford University Press from about five years ago. All right. Thanks so much, Jay. All right. Thank you. Take care. You too.